0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Tonight, new alcohol restrictions are in force in Alice Springs, but angry business owners are now planning legal action against the government over the ongoing crime wave. Also lying to get a home loan, a survey suggests one in eight borrowers fibbed on their mortgage loan application. Could the extent of mortgage stress be about to get worse? And phones are now banned in South Australian public high schools. Will it succeed in cutting down distractions and boosting grades?
2: We saw that during the COVID lockdowns, that mobile phones are actually really good educational tools. So if teachers have a choice, if parents and schools can have a say, that's great. I think where states are having blanket bans and completely prohibiting the use of phones, then we have problems.
1: Thanks for your company. We begin in Alice Springs where new alcohol restrictions came into force today in an effort to tackle the escalating crime wave. Business owners in the town who say the restrictions are too little and certainly too late are planning to launch a class action against the NT government claiming it's failed to keep their staff, customers and businesses safe despite repeated warnings. Both the federal and NT governments have promised extra money, additional policing, and they are considering reimposing blanket alcohol bans in Indigenous communities. But as Jane Barden reports, it clearly hasn't been enough to defuse anger in the town.
3: The organiser of the class action and Alice Springs motorbike servicing shop owner Garth Thompson has been consulting lawyers and preparing it for weeks. He didn't want to be interviewed until he signed up co-claimants. The town's independent NTMP, Robin Lumley, isn't surprised rising anger about escalating crime in the town has led to legal action.
4: And I know that one of the leading businessmen involved in this class action, his business has been broken into and smashed up literally dozens and dozens of times.
3: Robin Lamley can see why the two government's responses of a bit more policing and family programs money and closing bottle shops two days a week from today hasn't been enough to head off the community action.
4: The Northern Territory government really has done nothing in the scheme of things to address this crime crisis. So it's little wonder A group of business people with certain resources have come together and said if the government won't listen to us and will not respond appropriately to the scale of the crime problem we have, we will make them listen.
3: Is there any worry, given the tight resources that the Northern Territory government has, that if it's expecting it might have to pay a big payout, that it could even result in less financial resources being devoted to Alice Springs?
4: I think... In the first place, this is symbolic. It's about a group of people saying, you want us to put up with conditions that in any other part of Australia are completely unacceptable, then we will take you on. I don't know that it's particularly about the money. Calls by
3: Alice Springs Mayor Matt Patterson to bring in Federal Police of the Army prompted the Prime Minister and Chief Minister's visit last week. He's not surprised the visit hasn't stopped the class action plan.
4: Look, I think it's a grassroots approach that people are fed up with the lack of action in in Alice Springs and just want change.
3: Is it something that you're supporting?
4: Look, I'll always support, you know, community who want to put pressure on other levels of government. I just think it's residents coming together who are fed up that they're continually broken into. They're continually having to board up windows or replace glass or it's just becoming untenable.
3: Matt Patterson thinks two-day bottle shop closures are a band-aid measure, already causing more break-ins to steal alcohol. Long term, he thinks more investment in housing and tackling poverty in surrounding remote communities is the only thing that will solve the crime problem. But the next thing he wants is both governments to go ahead with their plan, flagged as a possibility last week, to impose blanket bans on alcohol in all indigenous communities, which were lifted by the federal government in July.
4: So obviously we've opened up the rivers to grog to the town camps in Alice Springs and we weren't ready for that. I think the experts basically begged the two levels of government, the federal government and the territory government, not to let the bans lapse. You know, I just urged the Northern Territory Government to go back, put them back in place for a short time whilst we can get our ducks in a row.
3: The Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance head, John Patterson, had warned lifting the bans would cause chaos and also wants them returned. But he's supporting the NT government's proposal that communities should still get to choose whether they have alcohol, because some communities have labelled blanket bans racist.
2: We wanted an opt-out option rather than an opt-in. We wanted to see a very, very detailed alcohol management plan before anybody gets the green light.
3: The head of the Alice Springs Chamber of Commerce, Nicole Walsh, says her organisation isn't driving the class action plan. It's the individual and
5: the business's prerogative if they choose to go along that track.
3: Is there a potential for it to be counterproductive as well? there is a potential for that as well. and um, I think at the moment we're
5: very much concentrating on, you know, we're in the national spotlight, so there's a lot of people working together and I think we just need, we need to keep that momentum going.
3: Asked if she's worried about the class action plan, the NT Chief Minister Natasha Files says Alice Springs crime problems will only be fixed if the community and her government work together. These are intergenerational issues, we need to look at the factors that drive them, they're multifactorial,
0: uh, it's around that service delivery. It's around what people can access in remote communities. So these are complex issues to address, but we're committed to that.
1: That's the NT Chief Minister, Natasha Files, ending that report by Jane Barden. An Indigenous woman who died in agony and begging for help in a Melbourne jail cell would still be alive if governments had acted on all the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. That's according to a Victorian coroner today. In damning findings, he concluded Veronica Nelson was failed by governments, the corrections system, police, doctors, nurses and lawyers and he's recommending the DPP consider criminal charges against the company responsible for her medical care in jail Samantha Donovan prepared this report and a warning it contains distressing content and the voice of an indigenous person who has died
6: This is indigenous woman Veronica Nelson calling for help from her jail cell in the early hours of January the 2nd 2020
3: ah! Nelson, you need to try and stop because you're keeping the other prisoners awake. Oh, I can't give you anything else. Oh, Daddy,
6: Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Charged with shoplifting, she's been refused bail and is withdrawing from heroin.
4: Just try and have some water. Try
3: and keep moving around. Have you had your shower? Yes. Yeah. Go and have another shower. Put some warmth on it. I have salt. I can't get anything to you.
6: Four hours later, corrections officers discovered her dead in her cell. A Victorian coroner, Simon McGregor, found today Ms Nelson had been treated in a cruel, inhumane and degrading way by corrections officers and medical staff in the 36 hours she'd been in custody. And the stigma attached to drug users was a factor in the way she was treated. Vomiting regularly and suffering from bad cramps, she'd called for help on the intercom 49 times.
7: The sounds of Veronica's last pleading calls for help echoed around the courtroom, prompting me to ponder how the people who heard them and had the power to help her did not rush to her aid, send her to hospital or simply open the door of the cell to check on her.
6: The coroner found nurse Athena George sat at her station watching a movie for most of Ms Nelson's last night. He found private medical company Correct Care most likely withheld evidence from the review of Ms Nelson's death and is referring the company to the Director of Public Prosecutions for the consideration of criminal charges for possible breaches of workplace health and safety laws, a decision welcomed in court by Ms Nelson's family and friends.
7: I am satisfied that there is evidence of a sufficient level, more than a mere suspicion or conjecture, for me to form the belief that an indictable offence may have been committed.
6: The coroner said Veronica Nelson wouldn't have died if governments had implemented all the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody more than 30 years ago. There's too much policy and not enough change, he said.
7: Governments have had the answers to the problems identified in Veronica's case for over 30 years. The findings and recommendations of the Royal Commission were reasonable and implementable, and they should have resulted in the type of widespread systematic changes that could have prevented the tragedy of Veronica's passing from occurring. Our criminal justice system must do better for people like Veronica, and it should have done much better for her in this case.
6: Victoria's bail laws were tightened after the 2017 Burke Street car attack that killed six people. The driver was on bail at the time. But today, Coroner Simon McGregor called the current laws a complete disaster. He said they discriminate against First Nations people, see disproportionate numbers of them remanded in custody and Aboriginal women are affected in particular. He's calling on the state government to reform the system urgently.
7: The complete and unmitigated disaster of the 2000 2000- 2018 changes to the Bail Act is most obviously inflicted on the accused who are incarcerated, often for short periods and for unproven offending of a type that often ought not result in imprisonment, even if proven.
6: Victoria's Attorney-General Jacqueline Symes has thanked the coroner for his recommendations and says they'll be carefully considered by the government. Victoria Police was also criticised by the coroner for the unnecessary use of handcuffs on Veronica Nelson when she was arrested and for failing to tell the custody officer she was Indigenous. He found Victoria Police fails to inform officers of the vulnerability of Indigenous people in custody and recommended their training be improved. Veronica Nelson's first cousin, Shaunte Lyons, spoke on behalf of the family after the coroner handed down his findings. All the recommendations in the world from any coroner can come down, but unless we make real changes to the, the, to the system mm. and, and to the people that are running those systems how and, and changes people's mentalities, how are we meant to change it, how it comes out to Aboriginal people?
1: It's Shaunte Lyons, a cousin of the late Veronica Nelson, ending Samantha Donovan's report and if you're struggling lifeline is a service you can call the number is 13 11 14 or through the 13 yarn platform that's 139276 for many years family law and domestic violence experts have been warning those facing child custody disputes are doing so in an unfair system which can itself lead to abuse Well, that system is now facing a major overhaul, with the federal government announcing plans to change the Family Law Act. As Isabel Massali reports, the Attorney-General says it'll ensure the children's best interests are put first.
0: Nadia Bromley is in no doubt the current family law system is failing to protect
8: children. She's the CEO of the Women's Legal Service in Queensland. It is seeing women make agreements with perpetrators to have access to the children to put them in places where they are not safe because they feel like they have no other choice. So these are women who are facing homelessness or other sort of really vulnerable situations and this presumption of this equal shared parental responsibility is being misunderstood as a right of a parent to exercise, that an abusive parent has some sort of rights that need to be protected rather than the focus which the entire system should have, which is on the best interests of the children. And
0: it's that presumption of equal shared parental responsibility which is causing many problems. Nadia Bromley says it's one of the least understood and most abused clauses
8: in family law. And it's that clause that perpetrators have been abusing to continue that coercive control behaviour.
0: But that could soon change with the federal government planning to overhaul the system by the end of the year. Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus has explained the changes.
9: First among them is repealing the confusion that has come from the presumption of equal shared parental responsibility. We're now going to make clear that the best interests of children are paramount. Uh, There's going to be a requirement for independent children's lawyers when they're appointed to meet directly with children. We're going to provide the courts with greater powers to protect parties and children from the harmful effects of protracted um, adversarial litigation. We're going to simplify compliance and enforcement provisions for child-related orders.
0: Mark Dreyfus says Aboriginal organisations have also been consulted about another change, which would mean the definition of a member of the family is made more inclusive of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander concepts of family and kinship. The draft legislation has been released today and is open for consultation until the end of February. But it's been talked about for years and the Attorney-General says it's well overdue.
9: In the nine years the former government was in office, there were at least two dozen reviews in, into the family law system with hundreds of recommendations that were simply ignored. It's been a long wait since uh, these reviews have been handed down. We had the largest ever review of the Family Law Act done by the Australian Law Reform Commission, in, uh, which reported in 2019, and uh, there's simply been no action since. So. I think that there's an impatience to get some serious change uh, to these provisions in the Family Law Act.
0: Nadia Bromley from the Women's Legal Service is pleased to see there's a sense of urgency from the government.
8: Look, these are certainly long overdue reforms. Um, I'm sure you've seen in the history yourself for many years, along with more than 100 women's organisations, we've been campaigning for these changes. So this is an exciting day for women and their children and we just need to work together to ensure that these laws are implemented in a way that actually brings about the outcome we're all seeking, which is safer futures for women and children. Griffith
0: University family law expert Zoe Rathus says the changes are heading in the right direction and hopes there's support to implement them.
10: Relationships that break down where people can still talk, that's fantastic. But where you have violence and abuse and particularly uh, ideas like ongoing coercive control, the fact that a victim of domestic violence couldn't make an important decision about her children without going back to her former abusive partner who she thought that she'd been able to separate from, but this legis- the, the way the legislation was shaped, it really kind of continued... Um, those interparental relationships to an extent that could be very dangerous and damaging uh, to mental health as well as to physical health.
0: The Law Council of Australia says the changes will also make it easier for people to navigate the system, if they can't afford to have legal representation or choose not to.
1: Isabel Moussali reporting. And if you are in an abusive situation or know someone who is, call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. If it's an emergency, call 000. This is PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. We've heard a lot about the so-called mortgage cliff looming for many thousands of borrowers whose fixed rate home loans will expire this year, leading to a huge jump in their monthly repayments. Well, the problem could be even worse than we know, with a survey out today suggesting one in eight borrowers lied on their loan applications in order to get a mortgage. Still, the newly appointed head of Australia's banking regulator says he's confident the nation's $8 trillion financial system can withstand the feared levels of mortgage stress. In his first broadcast interview since taking on the role, John Lonsdale spoke with the ABC's senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan.
11: We are expecting that there will be pockets of stress as we go into 2023. And what we're saying to banks is they need to be aware of that. They need to be talking to customers early, working through options to make sure that any risk can be mitigated.
12: The Reserve Bank is widely expected to deliver another interest rate rise next week, probably another quarter of a percentage point, which would be the ninth in a row. How much stress can Australian households withstand?
11: Well, Peter, we look at the equation very much from the resilience of the entities and we stress test entities very stringently, particularly the banks, and that could be for higher interest rates or it could be for other macroeconomic events and the the safety of the banks is very paramount and very sound, even under a stringent stress test.
12: Speaking of resilience, there was a survey from Finder out today that said one in eight borrowers have admitted to lying about their incomes expenses and ability to withstand rate rises of three percentage points, which is the mandated buffer. How concerned are you about that, given that, according to Finder, there are 100,000 people out there who might have lied on their applications?
11: Well, we ask the banks to look very, very carefully at applications coming in to make sure that lending standards are appropriate. And yes, that is concerning if that is the case, but these are commercial decisions for banks and we expect them to be making the appropriate ones.
12: Because banks are meant to assess a person's ability to withstand rate rises, and we've seen some significant ones. So does that go back to the bank or back to the borrower who's lied?
11: Well, Peter, what we did in 2021 was increase the serviceability buffer to 3% that provides more room, if you like, for unforeseen events. Uh, like income or expense variability, but also interest rate environment that go up. So we think that uh, the system is in good shape and the vast bulk of borrowers that have put in place buffers during the last couple of years are in good shape. But having said that, there will be pockets of stress as I indicated. So if people have lied on their applications for a
12: loan, could that constitute a default and would that put banks in a position to be able to foreclose on a property given that it would be probably fraud.
11: Well Peter we look very very closely at the soundness of the banking system and the banks. If people have filled in forms inappropriately, well that's that's something the conduct regulator would I think have a very clear look at and it's something that banks themselves would have a very clear look at but from the prudential side, the side that we look at, the banking system and the banks and the system itself is very stable and sound.
12: You oversee an $8 trillion financial system. Will it be able to withstand any downturn in the housing market or loan defaults given the uh,
11: economic backdrop? Well, Peter, the financial system, the banking system, the insurance system that we regulate and the superannuation system is very, very sound. We stress test entities. We go into 2023 in a very sound position. While things can happen and it's not risk-free, we go into 2023 in a good position. And from the Prudential regulator's position, we very vigilantly watch what can happen and the economic climate and other risks as they unfold and make changes accordingly.
1: That's John Lonsdale, the chair of the banking regulator APRA with the ABC's senior business correspondent Peter Ryan. School students in South Australia will be going phone-free as they start the new school year. Students will have to keep their phones in their locker from the first bell to the last, with some schools handing out lead-lined pouches that can only be unlocked by a staff member to reduce temptation. It's a response to several shocking school fights that were filmed and posted to social media, as Angus Randall explains.
13: Outside Marriottville High School in Adelaide's East, parents and students are preparing for the first day of the school year and the first day of a ban on students using phones in school.
0: Basically school banding is a very proper, you know, proper. Yeah, I really agree with it. I think it could be a
14: good idea. However, I think that a lot of people might be angry because sometimes phones are really useful in the classrooms. For example, we can use them for photography because obviously the cameras on laptops are actually really bad. But we need to like get around the, like, all the social media because we shouldn't be able to do that in a classroom.
13: From today, South Australian public schools are prohibiting phone use during the school day. Phones must be silent and in a bag or locker. Some schools have gone a step further and introduced lockable pouches that can only be opened at the end of the day. Many schools already had a policy in place before the start of the year. One of these is Jamestown Community School, three hours north of Adelaide. Ellie Cooper is the chair of the school's governing council, made up of staff and community members. It's
8: really important that students are there to focus on their studies if they if they need to contact a parent or a parent needs to contact the student they can do that like they used to do before mobile phones by ringing the front office
13: there are already public school phone bans in Victoria, Tasmania, Western Australia and the Northern Territory, and private schools can have their own restrictions to deal with phone distractions. Dr Nicole Archard is the principal of Loretto College, an independent girls' school in the east of Adelaide. She brought in a phone ban around four years ago.
5: At the time, we noticed that our phone policy was clearly failing. <laughs> um, all of the girls were on their phones, so we actually went back to the girls and said, well, why don't we write a policy together and see if we can come to a shared understanding about phones uh, at school? And interestingly, the response back from the girls was they want to keep our policy they don't want phones at school and they'd like us to enforce no phones at school.
13: Dr Archard says students understood phones were causing a distraction, but the school decided against an outright ban in the classroom.
5: To try and ban them as an educational tool is probably not the way to go. You know, A mobile phone is like a, a mini computer and there are many apps and you know, various programs that we'll use mobile phones for in the classroom uh, if the teacher has invited it. So it's important to remember that mobile phones can be used for good as well as evil, (laughs) and it's trying to find, well, what's their educational
13: purpose? Students, teachers and parents can talk about their own experience, but there's little research into the role of phones in schools, Neil Selwyn is a professor of education at Monash University
2: there's been a f- bits and bobs of research done around the world there's no conclusive evidence that banning phones increases grades or outcomes or makes students um, kind of less or more distracted it's really difficult to kind of take apart all the different variables so often um, policymakers and head teachers will go with what teachers feel and lots of teachers feel that students are better behaved without the you know without the distraction of the phones
13: Professor Selwyn says mobile phones were vital during COVID lockdowns for keeping students engaged in a virtual classroom and now students are back together, some of that innovation has been lost and there's no phone policy that will suit every school and classroom.
2: Ideal situation each teacher can choose what takes place in their classroom. Teachers might have really good reasons for wanting to use phones for educational reasons for example so if teachers have a choice, if students have a choice, if parents and schools can have a say, that's great. I think where states are having blanket bans and complaints completely you know prohibiting the use of phones then we have problems
13: Queensland and New South Wales have no phone policy for high schools the New South
1: Wales opposition has pledged to bring in a ban if elected in March. Angus Randall reporting. Well, now to Tasmania, where not all kids heading back to school will be able to access the communication support they need. And we're not talking about mobile phones here. The state's public education system has a significant shortage of speech pathologists. And it gets worse the further students live from the capital. Alexandra Humphreys reports.
10: When Maria's son was in Kindergarten near Hobart, he had a speech delay. She knew he needed early intervention with a speech pathologist, worried it was a red flag for learning difficulties down the track. We talked to the school,
8: we tried to get some support through the speech therapist, and he did see the speech therapist, but hardly at all because sadly the speech therapist was
10: so busy. Maria ended up paying a lot of money for private therapy and she's glad she did. My little one is um, 10 now and doing really well, and he doesn't have a, a diagnosis
14: of a learning difficulty, although, you know, if he did, that would be okay too, but
10: but I, I know for sure it's because of the intensive speech therapy that we did with him. Tasmania's education system has rarely been fully staffed with speech pathologists. At the moment, about 30% of positions are vacant. Sarah Green is a delegate in the Community and Public Sector Union. She says that figure doesn't tell the whole story.
14: So in the southern region, they have a 20 20- vacancy Um, and in the northern region which is right across the top and including the west coast we have a 44% vacancy so there is a discrepancy
10: between the regions. It means sometimes schools miss out entirely. Often the most remote schools have students with higher needs but they can end up with less access to the vital services. And it means that we see
14: the most severe students and the most at-need students. Um, But what that means is that there is a big collection and a big number of students that miss out. You know, our wait lists are bigger than ever.
10: Sarah Green says there are serious consequences for children who don't get the help they need when they need it.
14: If you're not able to communicate, you will find it very difficult to participate in a classroom um, reading and writing will be harder for you, making friends will be harder for you, you are at greater risk of disengagement from school,
10: you are at greater risk of absences from school. Rosalie Martin is the founder and director of Speech Pathology Tasmania. She says waiting lists are
4: lengthy. It's kind of heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for families to ring in and not be able to receive the service they need. I can also say it's really heartbreaking for the speech pathologists and for their reception teams um, to be declining to be able to see people.
15: We know that while the population of speech pathologists has doubled in just under a decade, the demand for the workforce has Are actually more than doubled.
10: Tim Kittle is the president of Speech Pathology Australia. He says a recent workforce analysis report identified issues across the country.
15: So we know that there is a huge demand for speech pathology services, and this demand is not just for education but across the sector in terms of disability, aged care. In fact, according to our estimations, uh, there isn't an area of speech pathology practice in which employers aren't reporting that they are having difficulties.
10: And there's a reason some regions find it harder to recruit.
15: Many speech pathologists, while studying, will be offered placements uh, to meet their university accreditation. Those placements will be really close to universities. And so as a result, we're finding recently that many graduating speech pathologists are getting their first job at their placements.
10: For the first time, the University of Tasmania is offering a course for speech pathologists. There are hopes that will eventually help to overcome the hurdle of needing to attract therapists from the mainland.
1: Alexandra Humphreys reporting there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. Great to be back. Head to the PM webpage for all of our interviews and reports to share. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night.
0: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Australian politicians are being threatened with violence in volumes never seen before. Today, an expert in extremism and what's fueling the spike, and we speak to an MP about her experience. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the
10: ABC Listener.